The information in this podcast is meant for the education of clinicians in rehabilitation. This is not meant for personal medical diagnosis and treatment, and individuals should always consult an appropriate medical practitioner. Hello and welcome to APTA Neurology Section Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast discussion on implications of vestibular input to the hippocampus for vestibular rehabilitation. This is your host, Puneet Daliwal, physical therapist and vestibular rehab specialist, and I'm joined today by Dr. Paul Smith, professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology, University of Otago Medical School, Dunedin, New Zealand. Paul Smith completed his PhD in vestibular neuroscience under the supervision of Ian Kurthwaite at the University of Sydney in 1987. Following postdoctoral research at the University of Sydney, he moved to Dunedin in New Zealand. In 1997, he became an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology, School of Biomedical Sciences, University of Otago Medical School, where he was made a full professor in 1999. In 2004, he returned to Massey University as a part-time extramural student to retrain in statistics, and in 2013, graduated with a Master of Applied Statistics degree, first-class honor. In 2014, Paul was awarded a DSE by the University of Otago. He has published three books and more than 300 scientific papers and book chapters and is on the editorial boards of Frontiers in Neurology, Neurotology, Frontiers in Neuroscience, and Frontiers in Psychology, the Journal of Vestibular Research and ORIS, NASIS, and Larynx. Paul's main research interests lie in the effects of vestibular dysfunction and stimulation on higher cognitive function, especially the hippocampus, but also cognitive motor interaction in the striatum as well as the mechanisms of tinnitus. He's also interested in the application of multivariate and dating mining analysis to the vestibular research. Hello and welcome, Professor Smith. Hello. Thank you for having me. So um, it's a very deep uh, neuroscience topic about hippocampus, and it's, um, there's more and more research to it. So um, what is this connection about vestibular dysfunction and cognitive deficits? Well, from, from the 1960s, uh, there were many animal studies published that suggested that the vestibular system, because of its role in detecting uh, head movement, um, strictly speaking, head acceleration, was important in telling the brain um, where the animal was in the environment. And, and then in the late 1980s, the first papers were published which suggested that, that people with vestibular dysfunction um, exhibited certain kinds of cognitive deficits, particularly cognitive deficits related to spatial memory. Now there have been many, many studies published um, there's a wealth of data to show that vestibular dysfunction seems to be associated with spatial memory deficits in, in particular. Now, why is it so important to understand this connection as a vestibular rehab specialist? Well, I guess there are, there are two main reasons. The first is that the spatial memory deficits that vestibular patients have and, and other cognitive deficits that, that they may have as well um, may actually interfere with the rehabilitation process that the specialist is trying to, to conduct. Um, you know, for example, if someone has trouble with spatial navigation, then, then some of the, the, the 
uh, rehabilitation exercises might be affected by um, their inability to, to navigate um, accurately and even retain information about the spatial environment. But I guess the other, the other thing is that, that there is now evidence that vestibular rehabilitation itself can actually benefit cognitive deficits um, that occur as, as a result of vestibular dysfunction. Um, in addition to benefiting vis visual instability and and, um, and postural deficits. Now that when you're speaking about this evidence uh, for cognitive changes, are there any uh, particular studies that are very strongly um, geared towards um, telling us about um, these um, deficits that are present? Any, yes, anything that you'd like to mention specifically? Yeah, there are two papers in the journal Scientific Reports published in the last few years. Um, the first one was by uh, Rog and colleagues, published in two, 2017, and they actually studied 40 healthy subjects. So they were aged between 19 and 65, and they gave, so these were people who had no vestibular function, just a, no vestibular dysfunction but they gave them balance training for about 12 weeks. And they found that compared to a, a control group that had had relaxation um, training only, the, the group that had the balance training actually showed an enhancement of spatial cognition. That's one study. And, and another study, which was of patients with intractable dizziness um, by Sugaya et al, published in 2018, also in scientific reports, um, these patients were given vestibular rehabilitation experience for five days in hospital and then they were assessed at uh, one and four months after they left and they showed in improvements um, in a cognitive test called the, the trial making test as well as in the um, Hamilton depression rating scale and the dizziness handicap inventory but the, the trial making test specifically tests um, uh, cognitive function. So, you know, this was a study that suggested that, that vestibular rehab could actually help cognitive function um, in people who had cognitive uh, impairment as a result of, of, uh, of dizziness. Now, uh, Professor Smith, are there any specific vestibular conditions um, that are strongly associated with cognitive decline and if there's any uh, stronger evidence in those conditions? The, um, because because the, the investigation of cognitive deficits associated with vestibular disorders really only began um, systematically in the 1990s, there are still many, many types of vestibular disorders that haven't been studied in this context. Um, what we have at the moment is um, strong evidence from studies of people with complete bilateral vestibular loss, but of course that's relatively uncommon. And then there are studies of people with partial bilateral vestibular loss and complete unilateral vestibular loss. Um, and there are also studies of people with vestibular vertigo and um, a, a group of epidemiological studies where there's a mixture of etiologies. But it's hard to find. There aren't very many studies specifically of Meniere's disease, um, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, vestibular migraine, vestibular neuritis, etc. Um, I think these will come, but 
you know, at the moment, there aren't very many studies in all of these different categories. The other thing, though, is that um, there's strong evidence now published by Yuri Agrawal and, and colleagues that age-related vestibular dysfunction is, is linked to cognitive decline in older people. And um, particularly otolithic um, um, decline or uh, degradation of otolithic function. So I think it's just a question of time before you know all the different types of vestibular disorders are investigated in this way. And um, you know one would predict that the specific kinds of cognitive disorders will vary in in type and degree depending on the specific um, vestibular disorder. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting, and I agree that it's so early that it's um, but there's very strong evidence for bilateral vestibular dysfunction, and it's uh, prominent. Now, what are the chief structures that are relevant when understanding these effects of vestibular dysfunction? Well, I, I suppose that the, the structure that's been studied the most is the hippocampus, but there are, in fact, many structures that, that are important. The hippocampus was a natural place to start, um, although it's hard to believe now that, you know, back in the early 2000s, there were people who, who really doubted that the hippocampus would be affected. Um, now it's, it's, it's very well accepted and almost, you know, obvious. But the hippocampus was a natural place to start because it's known to be important for um, spatially responsive cells like uh, place cells that encode places in the environment. And the discovery of place cells won uh, John O'Keefe the Nobel Prize in 2014. In, in the neighboring entorhinal cortex, there is another kind of cell called grid cells, which also respond um, to, uh, to the spatial environment. And the discovery of these um, resulted in Edvard Moser and May Britt Moser winning the uh, Nobel Prize in that year as well. There are other cells like head direction cells in the thalamus and, and elsewhere. And together, it's believed that these different kinds of spatially responsive neurons act as a kind of uh, global positioning system or GPS um, for, the, for the brain. Um, but you know, we know that other brain areas like the striatum and cerebellum and obviously many neocortical regions are important as well. Right. And uh, would you please briefly describe it for our listeners, um, the basic distribution of the vestibular inputs to the hippocampus? Well, there, there appear to be about four pathways um, from the vestibular nucleus and cerebellum, which was received direct vestibular uh, input from, from the inner ear. Um, a major pathway through the thalamus, which goes to the parietal cortex, and then is, um, that information is transmitted to the medial entorhinal cortex and finally to the hippocampus. There's a, a pathway that's often referred to as the head direction pathway that goes through the dorsal tegmental nucleus to the anterior dorsal nucleus uh, of the thalamus and then to the medial entorhinal cortex and hippocampus. Um, a theta pathway that goes through the pedunculopontin tegmental nucleus, which is very important in uh, Parkinson's Parkinson's disease, and then the supramamillary nucleus to the septum of the hippocampus. And there's now recent evidence for a transcerebellar pathway as well. In the studies we've done, where we've, we've done electrical stimulation of different parts of the vestibular labyrinth, we find that 
whether it's the sacral or the utricle or any of the individual three canals, um, we get activation in the hippocampus, which is quite widely distributed. Um, so we think that vestibular input is, is represented in the hippocampus from all of the vestibular senses. Um, and also it, it projects to the dorsal and ventral hippocampus. There's been a lot of attention to the dorsal hippocampus because that's where the place cells are concentrated. But the ventral hippocampus is involved in a lot of emotional functions. And we find a lot of, um, a lot of input there. There are quite considerable differences between the left and right hippocampus. There's quite a lot of lateralization. Um, but you know, this, this may differ depending on you know, the particular region of the hippocampus. Now, um, out of my own clinical practice, I often have seen um, patients to get very anxious or even depressed uh, post-epistural dysfunction. And often I would, early in my career, um, I would often think that, oh, it's probably because they have vertigo, they don't feel good, so probably that's associated with anxiety or depression. But with more recent articles coming up, um, regarding um, there's a separate involvement of the psychological system. Um, uh, do you have any insight on that? that uh, what, what is your take on it? Well, I think, as you, as you say, it, it's quite understandable that someone who has um, intractable vertigo would, um, would develop anxiety disorders and, and depression. But I think that, that there's a... There's a deeper reason for emotional uh, disorders in connection with vestibular dysfunction uh, because we know that the vestibular input is projected into the, to the ventral hippocampus, which is involved in emotional function. We also know that, that there are strong connections with the amygdala, um, which is involved in panic. And, um, for example, Carrie Balaban reported a long time ago that, that neurons... Um, Neurons in the, in the dorsal raphae nucleus that, that project to the amygdala, many of those neurons actually send projections to the vestibular nucleus as well, releasing serotonin. So um, there are actually some strong neural connections in the brain between the central vestibular system and areas of the brain involved in emotional control. And so I suspect that, that in addition to the experience of having vestibular impairment, contributing to um, depression, that there's a much more direct modulation of emotional function. And, and I think at the moment, this hasn't really been explored by, by neurobiologists to the same extent as place cells in the dorsal hippocampus. The ventral hippocampal involvement tends to be relatively neglected. And I think it's from, from our mapping studies that we've done recently, there's a lot of input to the ventral hippocampus. And I, need, I think that connection needs to be explored a lot more in order to understand, you know, the, the development of, of anxiety disorders and depression in relation to vestibular problems. Yeah, very true. What are the effects of the vestibular dysfunction on the specifically on the vestibular striatal interaction? Well, uh, probably the the best answer is we don't really know at the moment. Um, uh, there are studies that have been done. Um, in humans using MRI that show that vestibular stimulation activates part of the, the striatum, um, the putamen and the caudate nucleus. Um, there are animal studies that show that 
that following the stimulations, there are changes in the striatum neurochemically and, um, and neurophysiologically. Um, and we know that the striatum and the hippocampus often work together during learning and memory um, so that they build, if you like, their own um, mathematical cognitive maps of, of both the world and also the plan for action based on sensory input. So we speculate that the striatum starts to become dysfunctional as well, or at least it undergoes plasticity when there's a vestibular disorder. But the details of it aren't really known because um, really people haven't haven't shown an enormous interest in the striatum in in, in vestibular neuroscience uh, since about the 1970s. Uh, there have been you know quite a few studies published, but it's been quite fragmented. I mean, I have to say the connections or the or the route by which vestibular information goes from the vestibular nucleus or the cerebellum to the striatum is very poorly understood. And um, certainly if you activate the vestibular system, you get changes in the striatum, but they're very complex um, mm. and uh, uh, not very well understood at the moment. So we have a long way to go with that. Yeah. And... Um you mentioned that already two studies about how it's important for vestibular rehab. Now, with this cognitive decline, um, for some patients, cognitive decline is very evident, whereas for others, it's very mild. And when it comes to spatial memory decline, what would be the first signs um, that you can expect in a patient? I think probably um, a patient might uh, report that they have trouble with spatial navigation. It's not uncommon for such patients to have trouble navigating in a supermarket, for example, or another um, complex space. There's a, a very complex interaction between vestibular input, visual input, and probably other sensory inputs as well in, in the hippocampus. Um, what the brain tends to do is compare different sensory inputs, and normally they should be in um, they should be in registration with one another. They should basically confirm uh, one another. But in people with vestibular damage, you have um, an uncertain vestibular input coupled with what might be a normal visual input, but then starts to change to try and compensate for the loss of vestibular input. If you put someone like that in a supermarket with complex visual environment and um, a degraded vestibular signal, then they start to experience all kinds of problems, you know, with, with navigation and um, sometimes even just being able to locomote through the through the environment. But they may have trouble remembering where where to go back to, for example, to the frozen chicken section or or the the cheese section, um, where they would normally, you know, have no trouble uh, recollecting how to navigate uh, back to a, a start place. So. This is essentially the same kind of problem that we see in animals where you put them in a something like a homing task and you train them to go out to get food and come back to a home. Um, in animals with vestibular problems, what we find is they can't remember how to get home, and uh, particularly in darkness. And uh, But even in light, they can't remember how to get home. And they go back to the wrong places, uh, thinking that incorrectly that these are their home bases. Um, 
And if you look at the way they move through the environment, they, they follow a quite a circuitous path because they don't really know where they're going. Um, so I think probably self-report, and it, unfortunately, as you know very well, you know the, the language people use to describe this can be quite difficult to understand because there's no obvious vocabulary when it comes to the to, to vestibular problems. People will say things like they they uh, they don't feel themselves. They feel like they um, they're not quite in their body. Um, um, that they're woolly headed um, and um, they just feel like they don't really know where they are in the environment. I mean, I think people like Christophe Lopez and Fred Mast and others uh, are doing some great studies now showing that when people have vestibular problems, because the vestibular sensory input is so fundamental and because the at least the otolithic part of it um, evolved more than 500 million years ago, when you, when you take away that vestibular input, it starts to make other sensory input ambiguous. And that results in a real problem of understanding the self, I guess is the best way to put it, and where you finish, your body finishes, and the environment begins. I mean, it sounds very, um, very nebulous and, and, and um, uh, complex to say that, but I think that's, I think that's what it boils down to. Yeah, uh, with with your discussion, I remember I had a very recent patient, and I was trying to figure out how she feels, and uh, she would always say this thing to me, uh, when I'm turning, um, I have to stop, reorient myself, and know where I'm in space, so that it makes, she um, very clearly defined um, her, and I, and I was trying to ask her, do you feel dizzy, and she was like, no. My, I, I just need to reorient myself. I don't really know where I'm in space. So um, that, that seems like the closest I got from a patient who had difficulty with spatial navigation. Uh, so now with this cognitive decline, um, do you think that that would limit the vestibular rehab um, efficacy as well? Or should we look at it this way, that when we do provide vestibular rehab, we will improve despite having that cognitive decline will still kind of create those plastic changes in the uh, in the hippocampus I, I think that that with uh, tailored vestibular rehabilitation there's a real opportunity to to um, to improve cognitive function I mean it makes sense obviously that that um, if someone is practicing um, exercises that involve movement, that it's going to be reteaching the brain, you know, about um, its position in, in the world, and um, depending on the particular kinds of exercises, um, it's a training in spatial navigation. I mean, then aside from from um, the usual sort of vestibular rehabilitation, the other opportunity there is to actually build in um, cognitive tasks. Um, may, maybe um, with movement or in a virtual environment, for example, the, the other way of, of getting an idea of uh, whether someone has spatial navigation problems or spatial memory problems is, is with computer tests um, that deliver virtual tasks. And these are becoming more and more available. In fact, um, 
my colleagues in France, um, led by Dr. Stéphane Besnard, um, have developed a new suite of software to basically um, display things like radial arm mazes and Morris water mazes on a computer, um, or it could be in a, a 3D headset, uh, complete with sound effects and everything. Um, and um, these allow the possibility of actually giving someone not just uh, uh, virtual tests to find out whether they have a spatial memory problem, but actually using them as a training device as well. And you know, other people are doing this too. So um, the development of this kind of software um, offers uh, a, a new opportunity. Of course, you know, it's been pointed out by many people that that um, that doing doing that kind of thing without movement uh, is obviously not the same. And uh, so, I think you know there are ways that you could actually build uh, cognitive spatial training into aspects of vestibular re rehabilitation. Um, I mean, I know I heard the other day that that um, that uh, I think. In, um, in the States, someone was actually putting people in a virtual environment, which was a supermarket, um, and, and they actually, um, they felt, they experienced a supermarket environment with shelves, and, and as part of the training, they loaded the shelves with different amounts of items to make the environment more or less complex. And so, um, you know, that's one, that's one approach to it. Yeah, they're doing that at University of Pittsburgh. I had the opportunity to go see Dr. Whitney's lab. And right. okay. it, was yeah. very, it was very amazing because I was one of the you know, participants to actually try it. It, it, seemed, uh, it seemed difficult. I mean, even if you don't suffer from any form of vestibular dysfunction, sometimes um, those environments can still trigger people. And um, yes. it was interesting. I was myself unable to um, um, maneuver the trolley. I still remember I was bumping into things. So um, that was uh, both fun as well as uh, very knowledgeable. Now, uh, for our listeners, Professor Smith, you mentioned about some of the tasks, like a maze water task. Uh, how much time do these cognitive uh, tests can take? Um, for example, the trail making test is a, a simple, quick exam. So, um, do you think it's a it's a good test for spatial uh, memory uh, for our patients? Like, quickly give this uh, exam, or do you recommend that there should be um, some other test? These particular tests, and I should say the um, the the lead uh, author on on this work, which is about to be published in the Journal of Neuroscience Methods, um, is. Uh, named Murray Law Machado, uh, they're all based on tests that have been used for decades in, in animals like rats. So the Morris Water Maze test is the classic um, spatial memory test that's been used in, in, uh, in rats and, and mice for decades. Um, this is a virtual version of it where um, you, 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 you navigate in a virtual water pool um, and if you're familiar with the, the, the classic Morris um, water maze test, um, you have a, a pool and a platform appears in a particular location, a particular quadrant, and then uh, it disappears. And then you have to remember where, where it had appeared. And it's, uh, it's a detailed protocol. But um, basically, uh, you're looking at whether the person, in this case using a cursor, 
to navigate to the correct quadrant, how long they take, um, the distance they travel and so forth. And then there's the radial arm maze is, uh, is a, a simple task where with uh, about six arms, um, rats are trained to find food in different arms. And you look at whether they can actually find correct arms and how many times they go to incorrect arms or revisit uh, arms that, that, um, that never had any bait in them. And so, again, there's a virtual version of that. The, the, the program, um, the particular set of particular program that I'm, I'm talking about here, which is called um, um, the uh, human navigation um, system, is um, it's designed so you can actually construct your own protocol. And so according to how much time you have, um, the particular sort of tasks you want, you can change all sorts of things. So I, I think that, that kind of program could quite easily be used in a, in a clinical setting. And, and there are other uh, computer-based um, programs like that as well um, that could be used by physical therapists to, to, to do it. And it doesn't have to take uh, you know, two or three hours. Or it can be done in a, in a, in, um, probably in about 30 minutes or maybe even less. Now, uh, Professor Smith, um, are there any medications that are present now or in the horizon that can assist with this cognitive decline associated with vestibular dysfunction? That's a, a really big question because it falls into the area of um, pharmacology known as nootropic drugs or drugs to enhance cognitive performance. And uh, this area is generally divided into two parts. The first is to try and boost cognition in people who have a neurological disorder, like dementia, um, where what you're trying to do is essentially replace um, uh, neurotransmitters, for example, that, that um, are depleted. It's a very simplistic way of putting it. And then the other part of the area is the possibility of actually boosting cognition in people who uh, don't have a neurological disorder, uh, and that could be, you know, normal, healthy people who just want to be want to be smarter. Um, you know, in the world of dementia, which obviously is not um, a, 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 a doesn't involve a vestibular disorder, um, at least not necessarily. Then the, the drugs that are currently used to, to treat dementia, um, like um, uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, drugs that basically increase acetylcholine in the brain, which is depleted in, in Alzheimer's disease, they only work to a certain extent and they don't really treat the root cause of the, of the disease. They um, basically slow down the progression of Alzheimer's in the best case scenario. Um, but, you know, they're really, at the moment, um, there are very few drug treatment options and there are really even fewer when it comes to um, trying to boost cognition in people who don't have something like dementia. There have been a lot of studies done on um, drugs like uh, piracetam and ampokines and others, but uh, essentially it, if you're trying to, to um, enhance cognition pharmacologically uh, in someone who doesn't have something like dementia, uh, there are very few drug options at the moment. There's a huge amount of work being done to try and develop um, such drugs, um, mainly for the purpose of, purposes of um, 
of treating dementia. But um, outside of the context of dementia, uh, many of the drugs that have been investigated, including ginkgo biloba extracts and others, uh, if they work, they work in particular circumstances and not in others. I think at the moment there's, a, there's been an increase in the number of, of, um, of papers reporting that um, ginkgo extracts like EGB761 actually uh, do enhance some aspects of cognitive performance. But, um, you know, the literature, literature as a whole is not very convincing when it comes to nootropic drugs um, outside the context of, of dementia. So uh, that's something that pharmacologists, uh, you know, keep working on. So in our closing question, um, how about uh, galvanic stimulation? Do you think that could assist on top of our uh, traditional vestibular rehab? I think that there are real possibilities there. There's a lot of work being done on, on galvanic vestibular stimulation or GVS. Um, and I've just seen a paper reporting that, that in fact it has, um, it can have a larger effect in uh, people who have um, vestibular impairment. But another area where GVS is being investigated a lot, and this is a very, very complex, very complex area, is is noisy GVS or GVS that has uh, that sub-threshold and has a um, what they call a Gaussian noise signal superimposed upon it. From from the early 2000s, there were scattered papers reporting that noisy GVS that was sub-threshold could actually relieve symptoms of uh, phantom limb pain, other kinds of neuropathic pain. Um, propopagnosia, um, um, even a hemispatial neglect and other things. And, you know, for a while there were few systematic studies, but now there have been more systematic studies published that um, claiming that noisy GBS can help Parkinson's disease and uh, depression and neuropathic pain. Um, and it's it's a hopeful avenue of, uh, of research. Uh, the problem is nobody really knows how it works. You know, the, the studies of, of what happens in the brain um, when you give noisy GBS, there are only a few of them. And so we don't really know what it's doing. Um, but it does change brain activity and it may um, change, um, it may change the synchronization of EEG signals in different parts of the brain. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done because at the moment um, there's no really good bio, a neurobiological understanding of what it's doing. But, um, you know, it is, it is being used in, in memory studies and there have been reports that noisy GVS can actually enhance memory in, um, in normal healthy people. So um, I think, you know, not knowing how it might work, we have to remain skeptical, but it's a, it's an avenue of research investigation that I think is very interesting. Uh, Professor Smith, that was a wonderful talk. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge and expertise. And uh, it was just great. Yeah. Thank you very You're much. Welcome.